Hello and welcome to Driftwood Christianity, the podcast that carves out the faith hiding in the driftwood of life and sends it on to you. I'm Andrew Smith. This podcast is recorded on the unceded lands of the Kondamukka and Jagera peoples, and today's Driftwood is Anzac Day. Most of my listeners are based in Australia, so you won't need much introduction to Anzac Day. But for the few who are elsewhere in the world, here's an overview. Anzac Day is a day when Australia commemorates soldiers who have died in the Australian Armed Services. The country gets a public holiday on or near the 25th of April each year, and that date was chosen because it's the anniversary of the first military actions since the colonies of this land federated to become the Commonwealth of Australia in January 1901. Australian and New Zealand soldiers fought alongside other empire countries against Germany and its allies. And in this case, very specifically, it was against the Turkish people on the Gallipoli Peninsula. Now each year on the day, there's a dawn service at a civic centre, often a cenotaph or war memorial. There's a bugle call, a reading of the fourth stanza of Lawrence Binion's poem called For the Fallen, and with this response of Lest We Forget from the crowd. After that, many cities and towns will hold a parade of veterans and current service personnel and other related groups. The rest of the day then becomes quite informal, often meeting for friends at the pub to remember the fallen, to connect with those who remain. Pub activities then really include lots of things, lots of drinking, maybe small value gambling in games like Two Up or other more recent inventions, depending on where you are. It could be cockroach racing or cane toad racing or whatever. In early years, the day was also used as a vehicle for recruitment and for stirring up patriotism, and only later gaining stronger significance as a day of commemoration. In John Howard's time as Prime Minister, The federal government really lifted the profile of Anzac Day even more as part of its program around national identity. In short, it's a day of military fervour and patriotism timed around that first military action. It's like any other War Memorial Day that you might see around the world. Our side are the heroes, always. There can be no criticism of the Defence Forces on this day or about this day. In recent years, I think a bit more was done to bridge the gap with Turkish people in a recognition of the humanity of the other side. But of course it's couched in phrases that speak to the skill and bravery of the other side and in both directions. I can only imagine under Turkey's nationalist government, the pride of the people of Turkey these days, seeing crowds of Australians at Gallipoli to mark the date that, well, our failed invasion started. It derives from World War I, the Great War, a war that started under pretty petty circumstances and with a whole lot of fear in the air across Europe. It could be argued that it was a war of these residual colonial powers still striving for their glory days and dragging the rest of the world into their death machine. Millions of people perished in horrific circumstances, and more than a century later, some parts of those battlefields are still uninhabitable because of unexploded munitions. The day has ceremony and has ritual. The same poem every year, the same music, the same location. It's easy to see the parallels in religion with psalms, hymns and churches. In our increasingly secular society, it's so easy to see how it's poised to become a civic religion. 
There are symbols. There are revered saints who hear stories of Simpson and his donkey. There are sacred texts, special clothing, reactualization of events, ascetic practices like getting up before dawn, shared meals around a community, a street festival, and the integration into government and other state apparatus. And the day has taboos. You cannot critique on the day. Any analysis of the ethics of war will have to wait for another time. Wait a week or so before coming back to debate about just war. And it's worth talking about how churches connect on the day as well. Some are quite patriotic, observing a minute or two silence in the nearest Sunday service. Some will thank veterans, current personnel and their families. Some might show patriotic or military symbols. And many of them will quote Jesus' words from John 15:13. No one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And all of this should be questioned and reconsidered, especially from the perspective of faith and theology. The history of the church is so deeply embedded with nationalism, colonialism and war. In 2000 years, our faith has either launched or supported wars that have resulted in the deaths of millions of people. Right now, Patriarch Krill of the Russian Orthodox Church is blessing the soldiers and weapons of the Russian military as they try to take Ukraine. In October last year, he said, The church is aware that if someone, moved by a sense of duty, by the need to fulfil his oath, remains faithful to his calling and dies in the performance of his military duty, he certainly commits an act tantamount to sacrifice. He sacrifices himself for others. In March last year, just a month after the invasion began, Putin quoted Christian scripture to support the invasion. And there's no surprise which verse he used. John 15:13. The same one said in churches across Australia today. It would be easy and lengthy to continue the critique of militaristic nationalism. Plenty of others have done that with more time, more words and more depth than I will today. Instead, I want to carve something different. I want to suggest that even if days like Anzac Day continue, and even if people continue to mangle Jesus' words out of context to support war, there is still a Christian response that is waiting in the wings. There is still some hope available to us beyond the sabre-rattling. John Crossan argues that first century Judea was the beginning of non-violent resistance. Not just non-violence but non-violent resistance. It's a way to resist empire and evil without resorting to violence. Jesus repeatedly taught his disciples that violence was not the way to bring heaven to earth. Instead, he taught his disciples to use love and peace to live a different way. What is now John 15 is a lengthy account of the community that he was building, of the shared life of his disciples, and how much the powers of the world will hate it and hate his followers for living that way. Jesus taught peace. It is beyond dispute that he taught peace. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. That's people who make peace. Not make war, but make peace. These people are blessed. They're part of God's family. They're part of God's household. They're bringing God's ways into the world. The ways of love and peace are not a shock to Christians. 
but they also aren't just the same love and peace experienced in the middle-class affluent parts of the world where we have quiet neighbourhoods. No, Jesus taught love for friends, for strangers, and for enemies. Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world, but was of a kind that could ignore the ways and barriers of this world. If Jesus' teachings about love and peace were enacted today, it would be a shock to the world. These ideas were so deeply entrenched in the early churches that it was considered incompatible for Christians to join the army. Writers like Tertullian and Origen expressly pointed this out. Their arguments were many and included a few ideas like this. One, that soldiers could not be Christian and also participate in the religious practices of the Roman army. It included the idea of prohibition against killing, that Christians were not allowed to kill. And most powerfully... It was based on the idea that loyalty to Caesar was incompatible with loyalty to Jesus. The lordship of Jesus was in direct opposition to the lordship of Caesar. Jesus' way and the way of the Roman Empire were at odds with each other. Beyond this, prior to this, are the words of the Hebrew prophets who looked forward to the day of the Lord. In Isaiah 2.4 we hear the call that God will judge between nations that nations won't wage war against each other, that weapons will be turned into farm equipment, and that we humans won't even train for war. Imagine a time when tanks are ploughing fields. Imagine when military cargo aircraft deliver food and medicine to famine and sickness-ravaged countries. Imagine all those R&D budgets for weapons technology being used for sustainable farming or medicine. And if we belong to a community of love and peace then this is our response to Anzac Day. It is right to mourn the loss of lives. It is right to commemorate those tragedies. It is right to say, lest we forget, because it's right to commit ourselves to a future of peace. It is right to commit ourselves to being peacemakers. It is right to say never again to war and to put our energy into justice and reconciliation. So by all means, let's have the memorials. But don't stop there. Why stop there? Why let the day stop with sadness and booze? I believe that the Christian church has a role to play in organising work for peace. Each of us should reflect as individuals what it means to love the enemy, to love those who hate us. The recent death of Father Bob, who lived this mentality and this life, only serves to strengthen this point. He showed a life of loving the unlovely, the people he didn't necessarily like, but he loved them and served them. Imagine if the afternoon of Anzac Day was a day when the churches hosted peacemaking workshops, training and facilitating ways to peace. Imagine if our liturgies and Bible studies and church services and reading plans mourned the losses, repented of our willingness to go to war so quickly, and preached peace. Imagine a church service that was a prayer meeting for peace, praying for allies and enemies, praying for them, their welfare, their prosperity, their families, their lives, their peace. The divine community of love that Jesus created is a place that can launch this. And you can pick this up. You can do something with it. Talk about peacemaking with other believers. Learn about how to make peace. Show love to people. Wash their feet, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick. Anzac Day is what Australia does with its war memory. But we don't have to give it the last word. Instead, the last word should be peace. 
All the emotion of sorrow and memory and tragedy in the morning can be turned to the future instead of simply looking into the past. Take all that energy and use it to make peace. If there is anything of God's love in you, turn your eyes to the possibilities of divine love in the world and become a peacemaker. And like Jesus said, you will be blessed and you will be called a child of God. Thank you for listening. I appreciate that you took the time for this and would love to hear from you about how you turned Anzac Day into a day to make peace. I've included links to many things in the show notes. You can find them in your podcast app. It's things like Anzac Day, it's traditions, um, some explainers of just war, a bit about who Simpson was, and so on. And even quotes for what the Russians have been saying and how they've used the same scriptures to support their armies. And if you'd like to support this show, you can do that in a number of ways. You can rate and review the show. That really helps. It helps other people to find it. And you can tell people about it. Share it on socials. Tell your friends. You can like and subscribe the posts on socials as well. So it's finding it on Facebook is easy. I'll, find, I'll put the link in the notes as well. And following me on Twitter and Mastodon if you're on those platforms. And as always, you can comment on it. Because this episode is now Driftwood for you. What will you carve out of it?